Listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. It is February. That means we need to spend some time searching scripture this month. Yes, and we'll we do. do that with Pastor Oliphant in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. It is time to take a look at searching scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Joining us today, the Reverend Tony Oliphant. Pastor Oliphant is at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois, and is writing these monthly columns to help us dig into God's Word. Pastor Oliphant, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Pleasure to be back. All right. We are continuing our searching scripture efforts, and you're doing a great job of helping us dig into God's word. This month, reasons to rejoice. We're continuing mm-hmm. in Ephesians, right? What? Give us, a, 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 I guess, maybe a preview, a forecast of what we're going to dig into today. So today we're going to be taking a look at the setting that Paul is writing his letter to the Philippians. It's it's not the kind of setting you normally would picture when somebody's writing a letter about rejoicing. He's writing it from prison. He's on house arrest in Rome, waiting for his trial to be heard by Caesar. And yet as he's writing to the Philippians, he is writing about all of these reasons to give thanks to God and uh, be joyful. Shall we dig in then? Ready to go? Sounds good. All right. Question one. Read Philippians 1, verses 12 to 13. Paul rejoices over the gospel, advancing to a specific group of people. Who are they? We have here Paul writing, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And we see here, Paul is writing, he's rejoicing over the gospel going to the imperial guard. Uh, This is not something that we would normally think. uh, These are the people who are keeping Paul in chains. And yet he's giving thanks to God that the gospel has gone out to that. We normally wouldn't think of our captors or the people who are holding us down or restraining us as the ones who would, that we would be thankful for something good like this happening. But Paul here is giving thanks that the the Praetorian guard, that would be uh, Caesar's own personal guards that he dispatches to take care of special cases, that he, uh, that he's thankful that these people are hearing the gospel, just spending all of this time with him, keeping him under arrest. All right. Shall we proceed? Yeah. Question two. We might find it difficult to rejoice over something good happening to those responsible for keeping us in chains. How can Paul rejoice? Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, and Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. So we'll start out by taking a look at what Paul has written to the Romans before. So it's interesting. He's written this letter to the Christians who are in the city of Rome prior, and now he's in the city of Rome under arrest writing to the Philippians. And he's, he's very consistent in all of history. He's writing, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, to repay no one evil for evil, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And so it also says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not over be, over, not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we see Paul living out these very words that he's written to the citizens of Rome previously 
And now that he's under arrest and he has every opportunity to actually do it, now he is repaying evil with good. These people that are unjustly keeping him under arrest, he's speaking the gospel to them so that they can, so they would be able to come to Christ. And of course, it's no surprise to us that Paul, as someone who is following in the footsteps of his Lord, suffering, even suffering and being joyful about it because of the good fruit that it can bear. This is just Paul living out the words that Jesus has given in the Sermon on the Mount, that Matthew 5 passage that's mentioned here, where Jesus tells them, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so Paul is living out the exact words that Jesus himself has given to all Christians, that even those who are persecuting us are those that we should be doing good to and that we should be loving and praying for. And we see Paul apparently is even praying with them and speaking with them in the the clearest tones of the gospel and thankful to God that he has this opportunity to do it, even if it means that he's going to be suffering in the meantime. All right. Moving on to question three. Yeah. Paul mentions another group that has been strengthened by his imprisonment. Read Philippians 1 verse 14. Who are they? How has Paul's time under arrest strengthened this group? What are some ways that believers can be emboldened through the trials of other Christians? So here Paul is writing to inform the Philippians about what's going on with other believers. And most of the brothers, he writes, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is a pretty common feature in Paul's letter. He makes sure that he is giving the believers that he's writing to news of the rest of the church throughout the world. Those that he's aware of, he typically will send greetings or he'll talk about the, the gifts that he's received from others. He's doing the same thing for the Philippians here. Um, here it's much more targeted though, that he's, he's saying that the brothers throughout the world that are aware of his imprisonment, that they've actually become bolder in speaking the word, that this somehow has been strengthening them. And I think that it really goes to show the, and this is something that's going to be showing up in Paul's letter continually to the Philippians, the power of example, that Paul is a living example, putting his money where his mouth is and doing exactly what it is that he's been preaching, that he's suffering for the gospel, and that's encouraging other Christians, hey, if Paul can do this, we can do it too. And so it it gives them good footsteps to follow in, and it shows them that it's not the end of the world if, uh, if the world doesn't like what we have to say at first, that we can still see good coming from it, that God is going to be able to turn this around for the eternal benefit of those for whom he desires it. That, that, that's valuable and, and transcends time. We, we think, oh, okay, suffering in that time, that was valuable for Paul, but maybe not so much for me, right? Right, <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, for humans, like, oh, suffering, that was good for the people back then. But how much value is there in suffering for us today? I mean, that it, it emboldens, uh, God uses it to embolden Paul and, and perhaps for us as well. Yeah, that I think that when we consider Our place in history, uh, we've kind of been living in an era where Christianity has been uh, in a place of power. And now that we're returning back more toward a setting where Christianity is much more of a cultural outsider, and we're finding ourselves kind of in this awkward position of not having an automatic seat at the table, 
or not having people listen to us just by virtue of the fact that we're Christians, that we're returning much more to the setting that, that earlier Christians would have been more familiar with. And I think we can look to the example of the earlier Christians and how they interacted being outsiders that we're able to find some good words to say. We're able to find good patterns of behavior, especially here in Paul's letter. And then we can see the other Christians that he's rejoicing, uh, that they're also following in that, and that they're, they're not afraid to continue to speak the gospel, even if it means that the world's going to reject them or even punish them for it. All right, question number four. Read Philippians 1, verses 15 through 17. Paul mentions two groups of preachers marked by their motivations. What are the motivations of these two groups? What would be a possible goal of those preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry? See Acts 8, verses 9 to 24, and Galatians 6, 12 to 13, for examples. So we have Paul here in verse 15 talking about those who are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry and then those who are preaching Christ from goodwill. So these are the two groups that we see. We do see this even at the time of the apostles, that there are those who are, they're, they're kind of picking up on the fact that the gospel is winning hearts and minds and that there's a certain kind of unusual power that goes with it. And we can see this manifesting in two different ways. In Acts 8, we have the story of Simon Magus. He is a magician who sees the miracles that the apostles are performing. And Simon, he even converts, he even comes to faith, but he also wants to, because he's been a practicing magician, he wants to have the kind of power that the apostles were having with their miracles of healing, especially. And so he tries to pay them uh, that he would be able to do the same kind of wonders that they're doing. This certainly has a, a seed of envy in it. We don't know his motivation entirely. He may have wanted just to be able to heal people in a more effective way. But but the fact that he's offering them money for it shows that there, there probably was less than a pure intention there. Um, of course, then Peter calls him to repent and, and we do see him asking, we do see him asking for, we just see Peter asking him or telling him that he needs to repent, saying, may your silver perish with you. But then we see another manifestation of this uh, preaching out of envy. And this is in Paul's letter to the Galatian. And remember when Paul is writing to the Galatians, he's, he's having to deal with the fact that there have been these teachers that have shown up in the city of Galatia. And they're kind of styling themselves as super apostles that they're, they know all of the big names in Jerusalem. They, they haven't been going under the same kind of trials and tribulations that Paul has. And that they're using this as an example that Paul must be inferior to them. And we see Paul explaining why it is that they're borrowing some of his language. Why it is they're preaching the gospel when Paul writes at the end of his letter to the Galatians. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised to keep all the laws of Moses, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so we see them preaching Christ there, not necessarily for any kind of power like Simon Magus was seeking, but seeking more kind of a, a political or social capital. And so we see the preachers and the false preachers in Galatia that Paul is showing and pointing out. Of course, Paul responds to this by saying, you know, they're, they have, they might have impure motives. They're still preaching Christ. And so he explains that the, uh, the former, those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, they're proclaiming Christ They They think 
that they can afflict him. They think that they can kind of push him out of the picture. But Paul says, so what? In verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether it's those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, or whether it's those who are preaching Christ out of goodwill, he says, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. We are searching scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness with Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are taking a look at searching scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness with our guest, Pastor Tony Oliphant of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. Pastor, are we ready to go on to question five or anything else that you wanted to cover on question four before we move ahead? I think we can move ahead. All right. Question number five. How does Paul respond to those who preach Christ, not heresies, whether from pure or impure motives? Read Philippians 1 verse 18. So we want to be very careful here when Paul is talking about how he's he rejoices that Christ is being proclaimed by those who are preaching him, either out of envy and rivalry, trying to show that they're that they're better than Paul. They might be better preachers or they might have a little bit more status in the ancient world or those who are preaching Christ from goodwill. Paul, he, he's not, he never commends those who are preaching Christ through heresy. In fact, that's going to be the content of pretty much all of Paul's letters. He's going to be warning against false teachings about Christ and false teachings about the gospel adding anything to it but Christ. But he's going to rejoice that we can have these Christians who are the, the Christian, the, there are people who are hearing Christ, whether it's someone who's preaching because they want to win favor with somebody or because they simply want to speak the gospel to someone. We have people who, so Paul's rejoicing that, that no matter what the motivation of the preacher is, that the, that the gospel's going forward, that Christ is being brought to people. And this really does tie into our, our understanding of the office, that, that the preaching office is not so much about the man or about his personal call or his personal skills or talents, or whether he was in the, a perfectly great state of mind while he was putting together a sermon or praying, but that we have this, we have Christ being preached to people, um, even uh, something that is uh, something that's bigger than the guy who's doing the preaching. That yes, we do honor the office and we do honor those who hold the office, but we always recognize that it's always about Christ. It's always about the word of Christ going out. It's never about the, the personality of the man who's delivering it. 
All right, question six. Read Philippians 1, verse 18b through 20. Paul's rejoicing continues in the next portion of this letter as he talks about his imprisonment again. He recognizes that his arrest has given the Philippians an opportunity for prayer. What does he expect as a result of this prayer? So he writes here, he he recognizes that as he's going through these trials, that he, that he knows the Philippians are praying for him. He's received a good report from their messenger that they have been keeping him in their prayers as a congregation. And he is thankful that this is driving them to rely more on God for everything. That, and so he, he writes, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. And so his full expectation is that their prayers will be answered and that he will be delivered. And so we can see him just with this completely bold confidence that whatever it is the church is asking for, Christ is going to grant it. All right. Are we ready for seven? I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Pay close attention to verses 19 through 20. Is it possible to tell if Paul is talking about his deliverance as a release from imprisonment or from life in this fallen world? Read Martin Luther's explanation of the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer in the small catechism. How can this double vision of deliverance strengthen us when we wait for an answer to our own prayers? All right. So yeah, this, this was what I was hoping we were leading into. I didn't want to answer it with the last question. (laughs) So yeah, we, we do want to pay close attention to, to Paul explaining, he says he, that he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. And then he goes right into the next phrase, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul is recognizing here that deliverance does not necessarily just mean getting everything you're praying for the exact way that you're praying for it. That that when the Philippians are asking for Paul to be delivered, that that may very well mean that he's exonerated in his trial with Caesar, or it may mean that he is put to death for the faith and that he's martyred and that he's delivered from this valley of sorrow. And this is something that, that Luther does pick up on in our, um, in our small catechism in the seventh petition. And we can hear this echo where he's talking about both this life and the life to come, where in the petition, deliver us from evil. What does this mean? We pray in this petition in summary that our father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation. And then this is the second part of it. And finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. And I think that's really important for us to keep in mind this double vision that when we pray for things, we may not always get them the way that we ask for them. For instance, let's say we have someone with a terrible diagnosis or we ourselves receive a terrible diagnosis and, and we're asking for God to save us from it whatever disease it may be, condition we might find ourselves in. It very well may be that God says yes, and he does heal us in this life. It very may well be that he says, not right now, and that we receive our healing at the resurrection in the life of the world to come when Christ returns and removes all of all that afflicts us from us. 
And Paul's able to take a look at this and he's able to see both and he's able to give thanks that both, that, that both will happen. And so as we're waiting for answers to our own prayers, we can take a look at, we can, we can take an example from Paul here and we can say that, uh, God will rescue us. It'll be in his timing and in his way, and it will always be for the best. And so we can give thanks for that. Amen to that. Question eight. Sounds good. It can be humiliating to be rejected by the world, but Paul has a deeper source of joy and honor. Read the following passages and write down the reasons for joy in suffering. Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Acts 5, 40 through 41, and 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So for the, for those of us who are in the three-year lectionary, we just recently had the Beatitudes a couple of weeks ago. And the Beatitudes end in kind of a surprising way if we really take our time and read it, where Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Then he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. And so we can find reasons for joy and suffering in Jesus's own words here that we're in good company, that if we're going to speak the truth to a world that doesn't want to hear the truth, then we can fully expect the world to treat us the way that it has treated everyone who's spoken God's word against the devil's kingdom. And we can expect the, that we'll be in the company of the prophets, the apostles, the martyrs, and Christ himself. And so Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven. The world won't have much of a reward for you for holding to the truth, for holding to the faith, but God keeps a great reward for us. Wonderful gifts in the life to come. And the apostles pick up on this. They definitely were listening. Eventually, sometimes it seems like in the gospels, the apostles aren't listening that closely. But after Christ's resurrection, everything does come into focus. And we can see in Acts 5 here that they're beaten and they're charged by the Sanhedrin to never speak in the name of Jesus again. And they say, all right, you're free to go as long as you can do this. And then we read, and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And so we see Jesus's closest disciples rejoicing that they would be considered worthy to follow in the steps of their Lord to have the same thing that happened to Jesus happen to them, that they're counted worthy of this. And then Paul is going to pick up on this later on. He's going to, he's going to recognize the same truth as he writes in second Corinthians. We do not lose heart though. Our outer nature is wasting away. Our inner nature is being renewed day by day for this slight momentary affliction is preparing, a, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we're seeing that Paul's able to, to have a much further view that these things that we suffer right now, they're so minuscule compared to the glory that we'll receive in Christ, who's glorified, whose name is glorified above all other names and who's, and who's brought us into his name through baptism so that then we would share in all that is his. I think we have just enough time to squeeze in question number nine. <laughs> All right. Paul faces, <laughs> Paul faces a dilemma. He knows the joy and peace that waits for him after death, but he also knows that he still has work to do in this life. Read Philippians chapter one, verses 21 through 26. What does Paul say is the better option? Which does he say is more needed at that time? Why is it needed? And what does this tell us about our own lives of service in this world? So this is that, that famous passage that Paul has where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And he recognizes that the better option is to be with the Lord. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But then he goes on and he says that he, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account, that he recognizes that there are still places and people he can speak the gospel to. There are still congregations that need strengthening, that God still has words that he's going to speak through Paul. And so he says that's more necessary at the time, particularly at this time when the Philippians are, there's still a, a newer congregation. They're still growing in the faith and he recognizes that he's needed to be their teacher still. But this also tells us about our, our own lives of service in the world, that sometimes those things that are more necessary are the things that are for other. And that this helps direct us in our vocations, the, the places that God has called us to, he's given us tasks to do there. And while it might be better for us personally, if, if we were to depart and be with Christ, or if we were to find some other kind of comfort, it's actually more necessary that God has put us here to be his hands and his feet to take care of those that he's planted around us. And so following in Paul's footsteps, we can understand our callings in life as opportunities to serve others and put them first. Our guest today, Pastor Tony Oliphant, Redeemer Lutheran Church in Elmhurst, Illinois, helping us with searching the scripture in the February issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pastor Oliphant, thanks so much for helping us dig into God's Word today. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour, IBA Debates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.